Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Okay, um, I'd like to first of all uh, query our panel up here and say, with your career, how many cases have you done, Joe Bosch? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz. There's a real pop quiz. I see it. Can I just, more than 40? <laughs> That'll work. I think, I think uh, let's see. I mean, it's in the thousands. I can't even begin to imagine exactly how many. I don't know. You know, I used to keep track of that, but mm. a lot. A lot. A lot. Tammy? Um, I'd say probably averaging... We got to be close to 2,000, mm-hmm. something like that. Okay, that's, of course, a lot, man. For myself, I would say, I mean, um, I'm, I'm making, I'm on 12 years making 13. So, I mean, I've, I'm probably doing an average of, you know, 100 cases a year. So I'd say maybe 12, 1,200. Yeah, okay. Well, for a career of uh, 38, almost 39 years now, my best guesstimate is about 6,500. Wow, that's an experience. I think Joe's probably right along there with me. And uh, it just, I preface this whole talk with that because each case has potential for disaster. Mm -hmm. Each case has potential to go off without a hitch, which is the way we all love it. Uh, But every now and then you get these unusual cases Mm -hmm. that keep you on your toes for the next one. I used to work with a surgeon, Dr. Uh, Fred Pauling. He said uh, he was had a perfusionist, and the person he knew was interested in becoming a perfusionist, so we asked him what could he tell this potential person about perfusion. And the guy says, well, you need to teach them how to be scared all the time. And uh, that may be a little beyond what we would hope to have in our career. I don't think anybody would like to have that. But I think what you always need to do and realize just always be on your toes because you never know when unusual things like this happen. And the two cases I'm presenting today are that. They started out with what would be a routine. The laboratory values on both these patients, there was nothing unusual. They were going to be straightforward uh, coronary artery bypass cases. And everything set up, all of the pre-work done, the chart's been read, nothing unusual. Pump set up, going to look forward to a straight forward, nice case, and then things like this start to happen. So, as we start out with case number one, this gentleman, and first of all, let me apologize, I do have horrible allergies, and if you live in Texas this time of year, you're under attack. (laughs) If I happen to uh, need a tissue in a little bit, or I dry my eyes, just uh, apologize for that, but this is the way I have to live my life here, living in Texas. <laughs> as we first start the case demographics, as we said, nothing unusual. 68-year-old male uh, with coronary artery disease uh, set up for a routine cardiopulmonary uh, bypass. I believe we were going to do a cab time three on this gentleman. Uh, excuse me. Uh, surgical plan was going to be a cab time four. Uh, On-pump case, we were not at this point uh, into the off-pump arena just yet. So typical setup with a heart-lung machine and everything. We were going to do traditional cardioplegia. Thank you. And uh, with usual cross clamp. And uh, nothing unusual about this case should have happened. 
As we uh, began cardiopulmonary bypass, um, we clamped the arterial, I mean, clamped the uh, cross clamp and went on. And pretty soon after going on bypass, I noticed the arterial blood beginning to turn dark. First scary thing for any perfusionist, I've lost my oxygen source. So what do you first do? And I think what we've always done is what we've learned in school, look for the most simple possible explanation first. Mm -hmm. I looked down at our green oxygen line. It was connected to the oxygenator. That'd be the first thing I think you'd look for and make sure that did not fall off. That's happened to me before. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's gone through that. Mm -hmm. You push up a pump to the table and um, something happens, it gets caught on the wheel, it gets pulled off. That's why we do our checklist and make sure before we go on, we've got everything ready. Mm -hmm. The O2 line was examined and it was in place. It was disconnected quickly. A finger was put over the end of it to make sure there was uh, gas flowing. There was, at this time, it determined that the flow was good. The oxygen line was reconnected to the oxygenator inlet for O2 and the blood turned back to its beautiful red, crim first of all, crimson color, then bright red, and I thought, problem averted? When this happens, you are so relieved, first of all, that you've got everything back under control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, it's not in a vacuum, right? You're like, you're right. saying something. Everybody else is like, well, well, what's going on? Right, right. The first thing you did, obviously, that was going to be my next statement, was I alerted the surgeon, look, we've had a loss of O2. I'm trying to find out what's going on. The first maneuver uh, that I did took about 10 seconds to pull it off, realize that it was working, look over at the blender real fast to make sure that that was registering that O2 was flowing, reattach the O2 line, everything was fine. I'm like, great. When that happens, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I sit back on pump and say, what the heck happened? I don't have an explanation for it. And that's what always the surgeons say, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. I'll say, I don't really know, but we got you back on and everything's going good. Okay? So far. So far. <laughs> Case continues. Everything looks good. And uh, we hope that nothing else like that happens for the rest of the case. Well, does that happen? No. After a few minutes, the same scenario occurred again. Mm -hmm. And actually, this was brought to my attention because I had turned around and I was doing an ACT at the time. The scrub nurse and the surgeon, actually the uh, PA on the other side, both almost simultaneously said, the blood in the arterial line is dark again. Mm -hmm. So I came back around, looked at the situation, did the same maneuver, pulled it off, realized there was a great reduction in gas flow going through my green line. The line was reconnected because at least I knew I had some oxygen in there. I turned the blender up to eight liters of sweet gas and made sure it was 100%. And gradually, once again, turning from the dark, almost black that you get with no oxygenation, mm to the crimson mm -hmm. color and back to rosy, beautiful red again. Mm -hmm. Once again, my statement to the surgeons was, I don't know what happened, but I do have it fixed. At this point, I began a systematic look at all 
of the lines that could possibly go wrong. Green O2 line was in. I separated the filter from the O2 line to make sure the filter had not clogged off or was a problem. Or cracked. Or cracked or anything yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. That was not the problem. I traced the line back to the blender. There are two connections on a blender. There's an inlet and an outlet. I made sure that both of them were tight. Both of them were connected. From the blender, I go back to, uh, to the oxygen source, lines back to the O2 source. Plugged in, I hear no leak up at the up at the connection. I have no idea what has happened, except that thank goodness I got it fixed. It lets you know that we are just a prisoner to our disposables and our equipment. Mm -hmm. When we're on pump, we've got to know that they work. I don't know about uh, the rest of the folks out there, but. It's not a lot of the stuff that you learn in school mm -hmm. of how to troubleshoot stuff like this. I mean, you can't fix a blender. You just have to go to alternate sources and rectify the problem. Mm -hmm. I think most surgeons would agree a perfusionist is a problem solver. And if you get to that point, being able to keep your calm, look at the process, see what's going on, find the problem, rectify it, get the patient back in a safe scenario. Mm -hmm. Okay? Once again, the issue resol uh, resolved itself. Mm -hmm. Before I go to this, I'm going to say one more time during the run, it happened again. I personally had had it. I had gone through everything that I could possibly think of. So at this point, I said, I'm going to an alternate O2 source, mm -hmm. completely different from anything on the heart-lung machine, lines, anything. I was not going to trust it. Fortunately, in our hospital, we had an old giant H green cylinder mm -hmm. that is, by the way, still there. Yeah. And it's still tanks. there because they were bigger the than big me. green ones. <laughs> yeah. Those are the ones you see out where the guys are doing construction work and doing welding and things like that. Well, I had gotten that up, turned it on, made sure that the gas was flowing, plugged that into my oxygenator, and utilized that for the rest of the case. By this time... Uh, we only had a few minutes on. We were uh, we had already uh, taken the cross clamp off. Everything was going good. I had my O2 source. I know there was plenty of gas in there because that's one of my pre-op checklists. Make sure that tank was full, mm -hmm. and it functioned where uh, best for the rest of the case. It was 100% O2, so my PO2s got a little high, but it was the best alternate source I had at the time. And Problem that's not going to hurt anybody short term. Oh, no. 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 Short term, right? No. I mean, you know. Even so, long term, I don't think it hurts. Yeah, There's so, argument about oxygen. Just, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure I believe it. yeah. I'm not sure I believe that. Maybe with neonates, yeah, there's yeah. probably something there. But adults, I'm not quite sure you can ever over-oxygenate. But uh, maybe somebody will prove me wrong one day. Maybe a long, long, For long, a surgical long procedure, term. I think it's yeah, okay. Yeah, for a surgical yeah. procedure. But yeah. you have to come up for days. Yeah, yeah you can have dental problems and things like that. I mean, certainly I think things can occur. Right. But I think it has to be a long time. But yeah, I feel right. a lot better having a PO2 of five something and, you yes. know, and you know you're well oxygenated versus a, a, a PO2 less than 100. Well, and you really right. don't have a choice. And no. that's, I think, the point that you're making right. is that you have to be able to think about what can I do instead because right. you don't really have, you are actually doing other things. Yes. So you a lot of other you're things. You're doing a lot of right. things. So you really just need to solve the problem, get through the procedure, and then you can try to investigate what right. happened right. absolutely but i do have to say, say something i can't help myself 
when Mid just said that it's it makes him feel a lot better to have the patient have a PO2 of 500. A lot of, I'm sure it feels really a lot better to the patient <laughs> to have 500 instead of 50 of or, or of five. Well, I think his point is we're, uh, we're the patient advocate right. at that moment for their oxygen. Right. We have to make sure we're giving it right. to them, right? You want to make sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the surgeon is needs to do what they're doing, and everyone has their role, and that's right. our role is it at is. that moment is to provide right. oxygenation. Right. So Right. We... Uh, most surgeons, they used to a long time ago, I trained the Texas Heart, they would for the first couple of years have the surgeons, the residents come and sit back in the pump so they get a little idea of what we were mm -hmm. doing. I think these days the new guys come out, say, perfusionists, they've got it down. I don't worry about that. This is my arena. That's their arena. I will assist them if need be. Mm -hmm. But basically when you're there, in most places, I believe, if uh, you're out in the what I like to call the real world and not an institutionalized setting, you're pretty much the only one there. Mm -hmm. So yes. the responsibility to problem solve is right directly on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. I guess this goes back to how do you teach a person to be scared all the time? Mm -hmm. So when these happen, those are the, the moments of terror that you get. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our job, I've been told, is 99% uh, boredom and 1% sheer terror. It is. <laughs> and uh, it is. This, is my, this is one of my sheer terror times. So, I mean, what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's go through our uh, multiple potential sources of failure. We went through a couple of them, the O2 line being uh, unattached, the O2 filter being blocked, uh, some problem with the ventilator, I mean, with the uh, vaporizer, if you happen to use one on pump. I think I've most, seen that happen. Most people do that. Just, I've seen yeah. it happen. Just happened in my case. Well, that yeah. was a gas line, though. I've seen the filter part of the uh, vaporizer tank, if it's not screwed on real tight, real tight yeah. you'll leak and right. you'll, your CO2s will go through the roof. And right. sometimes your PO2 will come down, mostly right. it's CO2, CO2. Mm -hmm. depending on whether you get enough gas flow out or not. Mm -hmm. But you yeah. can usually smell it yes. unless you run all your vapor out because then you don't have a vapor left right. either. Right. Yeah, right. Right. right, that's true. And uh, I went back and I checked uh, the vaporizer. All those things were good. The cap was closed, the lines were secure. Uh, the tubing was in there real good. Uh, went back to the uh, yellow and green utility lines for room air and O2. They were good, plugged in. I disconnected them from their source. I get the alarm on the blender. So what happened? Uh, gas line interrupt, we said that was not a problem. Uh, connector cracked, didn't appear to be. Vaporizer failure, we went through that. Oxygenator failure, one of the scariest things of all time. I don't know if you've ever had to change out an oxygenator on a pump, but it's one of the scariest things you'll ever do. And I did that one time, one, one time, one time in my career, one time. Right. And it was my fault. No, it was not. This happened a long time It was my, time mine too. It was a bubble oxygenator. Uh, oh. And it was my fault. Oh, uh, that, yeah, I remember your story about mm -hmm. that. Maybe we'll throw that in a little bit later on. Maybe so. Add to that. Um, so that goes down to the oxygenator filter. It wouldn't make sense that that was it because every time I reestablish the O2 line, it works. It wasn't the oxygenator. So, uh, and gas filter leak, we eliminated that. That brings us down to this one source failure. Hmm. Okay. What we found out was this was indeed the problem. 
If we go through and look at a normal schematic of, uh, of a heart-lung machine, we're not going to go through too much of this. If they're your perfusionist, you know all about this. But if you look down in the lower left-hand corner, you see pretty much a good description of a gas line and what has to be utilized in order to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, just put your Give finger oxygen. on it and hold, and it'll be a, just put your finger right on the screen and yeah, hold it, it, and it'll be a laser pointer. You can see the uh, from the oxygenator oh, yeah. here, as we go back, here's our oxygen filter. Goes back to an O2 sensor, these, uh, and uh, to make sure that that's functioning well, we're getting 100%. Goes back into vaporizer, and goes up into uh, all of our other areas here that no one would normally check. And this is pretty much a standard for anyone. And the upper level here is the old secrets blender. Uh, we still utilize most of these with the telltale yellow and green lines. So this is basically a pretty simple uh, uh, way of doing things. And this is generally what most people out there tend to utilize or some relative form of it. So, <clears throat> so what happens? The cause. Recently, before this case, this case happened to be on a Monday morning, which is always you should be a little bit more concerned with a Monday morning Yeah, because they do work on the weekends, right? Sure. Absolutely, and that is indeed what happened here. Mm -hmm. Work was done on the O2 system for the OR and for the ICU. What happened was that I'm assuming that most parts of the hospital are quadrant off, so they can eliminate O2, turn it on, turn, turn it off for repairs, and to help for fire situations to control fires, they can turn it off. Well, what happened was there was work done on the lines going into the OR. Was this the same hospital that that they had the fire in the OR? No, no, it no, is it not. A it's a this different. Is, this is different. different. Okay. Yeah, at least from your description, it sounds yes. like a different one. Yes. What the what workers had done was left the O2 lines into about five of the rooms open. I guess they were bleeding the lines, O2, making sure they tested them. What they didn't do was come back and turn them off. So therefore, we had kind of a slight schedule that morning. We had now five rooms, open O2 going into the room. And we were on the case. What we found out after everything was said and done was that every time a new patient would go into one of the remaining OR rooms and they would put them on the ventilator and turn on the oxygen, there was more air being pulled out from the five that were left open, running 100% wide, wide open, and that the other patients that were being put on. So every time a new patient was put on, I would lose oxygen for a while. And I guess the other patients in the other rooms were coming off of their ventilatory status. We had this give and take of O2 wow. being available, O2 not being available, and no one knew anything at all about it. Dude, that's crazy. That is crazy. Now, you know, I wonder if any of the other patients in the other rooms were seeing O2 issues. Yeah. Yeah. Being compromised from like, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, were they? Or do we even know? We don't well, know, and it right? depends on probably where you were down the line. Maybe and you were at the end. We were come to find out the heart room for some reason was at the very end of the line. Mm -hmm. So if there was any oxygen going to be utilized before that final juncture where the green line and the yellow line come down through, 
it was going to use up that and be, make that available to that room first before it got down to the hardware. You know what surprises me is your blender alarm, pressure alarm, didn't go off. Well, I have a, I have a comment for that. I had a similar unusual case, mm -hmm. um, and mine's very recent. Uh, within the what, last year and a half, was at a different hospital, mm -hmm. and I went on pump and immediately saw, you know, you, you do your check, I have drainage, okay, let me start dialing up the flow, blood coming out is bright, the blood is not bright, wait, what's going on? But this particular surgeon is so fast that we were already about to cross clamp and the moment I'm saying get me an O2 source because I'm not I don't even have time to really investigate right. I see that the green line's connected I'm getting that oxygen tank the surgeon yells out why is the blood black got it under control I'm dealing with it and so we ran off an O2 tank right the surgeons very quick you know we were uh, on and off in less than an hour and then I had time to investigate I also had an O2 um, loss from the source in the ceiling, and I said, but why did my blender, you know, uh, alarm? Because that's supposed to be a safety, and the biomed person told me, never rely on that. It's a pressure differential, and it has to be outside whatever the range is for the safety that for it to alarm. So I had not a big enough pressure drop right. for it to make a noise. That's what I assume it wow. happened too. Yeah, yeah. And those <laughs> things are made to, it only goes along, uh, the alarm only goes off if you have one of the lines disconnected. disconnected. Yeah, so I must have had mm -hmm. just a, a little bit of flow. Right? Which is a huge pressure, pressure right. difference right. as it registers into the, the blender. So that's the only reason that alarm's there. Well, and I think that's an important point to make because right. in my mind, I don't know if I was trained you know, by someone who didn't really understand that or just that's what I took away from it was that was a safety thing. And so I would always know I have, you know, yellow flow and green flow as long as I didn't have an alarm going right. off on the blender. But that is not the case. Not, not the, the case. case. Not the case. And, you yeah. know, and also is your, you know, is your ball elevated in right. your sweep? Right. You know? If it is, you've got gas flow. Well, I had it in that case as well, but I did have a loss of oxygen. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, same hospital, but many, many years difference apart. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, having an oxygen sensor, like in the case that uh, recently occurred, yeah. wouldn't have mattered. Your PO2 was 500, but yeah. your PCO2 was also 120. Right. right. Well, I had, a, and this was actually what just this past month. Right. A leak in uh, the outlet of the uh, vaporizer. vaporizer, but it was right. a slight leak. Right. You know, the the line was connected, yes. but it wasn't making a nice seal. Mm -hmm. And so, you real, I went on pump, and it was not scheduled to be on pump. It was a scheduled off pump. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're you're, of course, going through all the things to quickly get on pump now and got our first gas back and the, I mean the blood was bright red so I, I knew I didn't have right. an oxygen problem but we had a CO2 problem so right. we made some adjustments did yet another gas couldn't figure it out then we're I finally decided maybe I just need to go to a different source mm -hmm. was going to get you know an O2 tank and then but the new vents uh, uh, most anesthesia vents also have a um, 
you know, a, a dial-up oxygen right. source. And so mm -hmm. I just went straight to that right. and immediately cleared up the problem. And then after the case, mm -hmm. we were able to determine that it was an improper seal into the vaporizer. It was a stylastic tubing that yep. had gotten stretched old and, and yeah, yep. not filled. as not yeah. as not as you know, it didn't it didn't reach it didn't shape. It just right. sort of lost its elasticity. Right. If you will, you know that old silastic tubing will do that after a period of time. Yes, it will. And it when will. you go on pump and you see your CO two is one eighteen, you're yeah. trying to really trying what's, to what, what is, is going, going on? on. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? That's for sure. So I just got asked. Uh, first of all, Eric Hunley says that's uh, that is a crazy scenario. Fascinating. He really enjoyed this. Um, and then uh, another fella, Amit, 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 Yorkani. And I've never heard of this before. Do any of you use a spinner distal to the vaporizer that gives you a visual indication of gas flow? No. No. I've never, I've never even, seen no, that. I've never heard of that. So okay. Amit, Amit, if you know what, if you can send us a link. Or a picture. Uh, or a or picture some... or something on here, that would be really outstanding. Or if, or if you want to call in, I know you may be, I don't know if you're if you're in the States or not, but if you want to call in. Or just send me something here, and I can communicate it to everyone out there. People are watching you, so they will see it themselves. I've never heard of it. It makes sense. I it mean, I can sense, yeah. imagine what that is. It makes, you know, I'm trying to think, okay, you have something that shows that you have gas flow. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the oxygen quantity, you can have gas flow. Right. You can well, turn it up, you sweep. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know when I've been in situations like that, and it sounds so simple, and you brought up such a good point. Well, is the ball up? I'm, I've been, you know, I've had circumstances where you get tunnel vision. You're like, I'm looking at this, and I'm not thinking, is the ball actually working? I, You know, right. you just, I don't know. You know, I, I think that sometimes it sounds easier. It's easier said than done. Right. right. And how we determined, actually, in that case with the, the vaporizer leak, the ball was floating, but... Upon closer inspection, if you fiddled with the tubing that was going in and out Come of on, the mm -hmm. um, vaporizer, you could see it would get mm -hmm. a greater force, you know, right. up and down. So it, that's how we eventually determined it is indeed the vaporizer. Right, you know? right, right. But you're right. You should have these things kind of in your mind. What's my checklist if I were to lose O2? Okay, there's, you know, five things or six things or right. whatever it is and mm -hmm. practice that. Right. Because in that stressful situation, you need to not have it, you need to not be trying to uh, reinvent the wheel with what you're going to do. You need to have you know the your plan of action already laid out because you're panicking. Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, you're panicking. You're panicking. Yeah. And I think it also brings up such a very good point: is you have to have a backup, backup plan. O2 yes, source always in the tank. Room in the room by your pump where right. you know you can access it and know how to get to it readily available and full right yes mm -hmm. absolutely right. test it if you're gonna if it's a vital piece of uh, safety equipment then uh, you need to make sure that you uh, you pre-op test that. yeah i need yeah. it needs to be a part of your your pre-bypass checklist right. and that includes for off pumps or standbys mm -hmm. i recently had a pericardial window that went on for a full bypass case yeah. And it was just a pericardial window. Exactly. We have a caller, <laughs> believe it or not. <gasps> we have a caller. You're, you're live on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Hey, is this, who is this? My name is Amit. 
Hi, Amit. I'm calling from the States. I'm calling from Cleveland. Oh, okay. Cleveland. Very good. Thank How you are for joining you? us. I'm good, thank you. So yeah, I was just writing you about this spinal thing because uh, we've been using it uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, and now when I where I walk, we also use the same thing, which is a part of the the vent, the ventilator called Dave uh, Omida, and basically it just uh, gives you an indication that there is gas flow. Yeah, it's that's to the vaporizer. So in case the vaporizer is not heated properly then uh, you, you will know that there is no gas flow. That is a really good idea. Yeah. I like that. I and like you it. said you get them from Omida? So the spinner itself, uh, I got it from, uh, from Omida. And then uh, I had to kind of improvise and take uh, like an endotracheal tube extension for both sides and mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. kind of like build up my own thing. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, use uh, like a 3-8 uh, water reducer for both sides so they can connect uh, the O2 line in between. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gives you basically an indication and the gas also that goes through it will not uh, digest the plastic, which is a good thing. Yes, so, that's good. So it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have, because a lot of these vapor anesthetics are solvents. Yes. Yes. And if you pour yeah, up, and and yeah. many of them will also give you an indication only from three liters per minute and more than that. And this one will give you an indication of gas flow from one liter per minute. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and more than that. That's a that's a mm -hmm. really wow, that's good idea. Great. You wanna you know you wanna you wanna just you know I mean my suggestion is to start making these things in your garage. <laughs> and start a company because I think I think yeah. that sounds like a really smart idea. Uh, it does. You know, it's the me. simplest yeah, idea. It wasn't my idea. It's where I was trained at the clinic, but uh, I, I took the idea for where I work right now and uh, <laughs> started doing that, and it's really nice. <laughs> where are you working now? At University Hospital, also in Cleveland. Oh, okay. So you left you left Cleveland mm -hmm. Clinic and went to went across the street to University Hospital. Went across the street, exactly. Were you? <laughs> how long you been there? Yeah. Uh, next month is going to be a year. A year. Oh wow! Yeah. A year since you graduated. Yeah. Well, this Good is for you. See, this is exactly yeah. why we do these things. We have someone who's used the device <laughs> none of us have used before. Yeah, right. And. What a great adaptation for the exact problems that we're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And if you don't mind, yeah. I mean, if you're sick of the cold weather, we're hiring down here in Houston. <laughs> you sound like you would be a great fit for our group. So, so uh, I am sick of it. But... <laughs> I am sick of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't blame you, okay? We have our own problems here yeah. in Houston, but... But freezing weather for protracted periods of time is not it. He did have a freeze, but you all sent us some cold weather, but it was only lasted a few days. Yeah. It was enough. It was enough. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've been watching your shows for over a year now, and I really like your discussions and stuff, and it's really nice to meet those. Because there isn't much out there about diffusion, so it's really cool to have what you do. Well, we're so glad you joined us and Amin, called in. You are so kind, and thank you so very much. Please reach out to me via email so we can. I'd really like to get a group of everybody together that does watch the programs and do a big like. Yeah, I don't know how. You know, I'm going to eventually do an in-person meeting again, and uh, you know, I want the people that are here now that watch our programs to be the first ones there and make it, you know, so it's really something special. I really do. I want to do that. We so could have an in-person meetup. An in-person meetup. We could do that. Too. Yes. We could do that too. <laughs> you like that? With some Herodora Ultra. Herodora Ultra. <laughs> 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 
some some tequila banderas. <laughs> so, right. Ami, thank you so much. Please thank reach you, out Ami. to me via email. Thank, thank you, you for the call, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Congratulations. Good luck. Bye. Well, that was great. Yeah. That yeah. was fantastic. You know, I'm so glad we got a call. For only after a um, year and, you know, just troubleshooting, know. you know, like, things like this, they don't teach you in school. No. Like, no. The, the engineering behind the mechanics Very, and yeah. problem solving. Right. You learn it on the fly. You do. And, and right. Then, and, then when, and we almost missed that call because Magic was outside smoking a cigarette. <laughs> he doesn't smoke. That's not good for he your health. He does. No. He does. No. That's well, what he was doing. Nope. To, uh, mm-hmm. to finish up case number one, uh, we had a risk management meeting about it, which is uh, certainly uh, appropriate. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was decided that, uh, that the work done on the weekends, that uh, everyone would know much more about it. It's one of the things we didn't even know they were going to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Just found out about the problem later. So there were internal things that were uh, discussed and decided on, and uh, new policies and guidelines were uh, made I think that's the whole point of why we talk about these unusual cases and these, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, things that didn't go as planned is because over your career, you take those things that you either experience or that you hear about Mm -hmm. and you file them away Mm -hmm. because you are likely to encounter, if not that same situation, a very similar situation. And hopefully you can use this as a way to manage that situation better. Right. Or even the hospital, risk management said, hey, you know, you're going to do work on the oxygen lines. Let's make sure the people who could be affected know so that if they do experience something, automatically they're thinking it's the main source. I need to go to a tank or this, that, or the other, right? Right, right, right. And uh, I don't know, uh, these days schools, I'm not sure how much of that that they do teach, but some, uh, you know, CPB engineering sometimes is a good course to have because you just need to know how to well, make things work. That's right. At Texas Heart, we actually had, an, uh, if not one, two, maybe even three lectures because Terry Crane, engineer yeah. guy. Absolutely. So, and so right. he yeah. thought it was very important Absolutely. that we understand the engineering side. Absolutely. We are not just clinicians. We are really also technicians. And we have to be able to, you know, have those kinds of thinking and training mm-hmm. and to know that that's going to be a part of your job. What we do is highly technical. Yes. And you, and I think, uh, I don't remember, is it my, one of my talks, I think the talk on Friday, um, you'll appreciate, I think, my comment to that, is that we're, yeah, I have a, I have a little, little something I think that'll be kind of common. A little clever something, comment. Something kind of funny. Eric also pointed out that when you're having problems with O2 flow or you believe it's O2 flow, your O2, PO2 may be okay, but your CO2 is way higher than anticipated is. Now, in that case of yours, it will work. But if your vaporizer has failed, which can happen, or it's leaking, a gasket mm-hmm. leaking, turn the vaporizer off. Right. Um, oh, yeah, that's an excellent that point. It. Right. But, excellent you know, point. my view about that, and I think that's a that's a good, certainly a great suggestion, Eric. Um, right. My view about it is if I have a problem with my O2 source, I'm switching to an alternate source. And Almost I'm just, immediately. that's it. I'm yeah. not, right. not going to try and, you know. Right. I think the old days we had one way of thinking. Of course, you know, what is it? How does, what do they say? Good judgment comes from experience and our best experiences come from bad judgment. That's right. So, you know, it's like, you know, I did this, 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 and this, finally figured it out. Now, the next time it happens to you, you know, because you did this, 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 and that, and it was right. that that did it. You those three previous ones weren't necessarily the best, but it got you to where you were. The next That's time right. it happens, or similarly, you kind of know what to do. It just comes. It's just experience, and yeah. the only way to get yeah. experience is to be in a place that's very high volume. Like when we went to Vanderbilt, 
Um, that guy there, and, and, and I think with, uh, with Amit being up at uh, Cleveland for training and then also over at uh, University Hospital, you know, their one, two, three years of experience is like 20 years or more somebody in, let's say, um, Greenville, North Carolina. Right, because doing, they're doing so many more cases. And different types of cases and complications and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, that, it's just really a lot more, a lot of, a lot more cases and a lot more difficult. They're being challenged. They're being challenged a lot right. more. Well, and that, you know, I think that goes to the type of uh, group that you join as well. Mm -hmm. If you're going to one institution, right. um, you may or may not have more support depending on how large the institution is, but you're usually dealing with similar equipment day in, day out. Mm -hmm. If you're at a group that goes to multiple locations or maybe you're a traveler, you right. know, um, you're going to be dealing with different situations, different ways that hospitals you know, have their, uh, you know, O2 uh, sources or the type of equipment or the support mm -hmm. system there. And so you're also collecting, you know, different kinds of information. Really, all of our uh, professional practices are different. And then that's why it's so great to share these things, because you may not have encountered this personally, mm -hmm. but you hear about it from somewhere else, you know? I total, totally agree. Couldn't agree more. Well, okay. So now you have a second case. I have a second case. Which we can go right into it. All you have to do is just swipe your finger. Okay. David will put your slides up on the thing. And I uh, put everything in, uh, in, in, in one thing, if you didn't mind, if you don't mind. So, David, okay. we're going to go back to slides. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, we're ready. Oh, it's we're ready. Up. Okay. So you can sorry. Go. go ahead. Okay. Um, as well as the first case turned out, this one did not. And uh, it is something that I thought would never happen. And as a matter of fact, when I did some search afterwards to see some indications of how often this might have happened, it is extremely rare. So, uh, and you, <laughs> you wonder sometimes why me, but I guess if you've been around for 38 years doing perfusion, you're going to see as many things as it could possibly go wrong. So once again, one of those uh, cases that should have not been anything unusual after we had a 72-year-old female, I remember her, she reminded me of an elementary school teacher, and um, she, I, sometimes the patients do that, and this one just took on a lot of extra meaning for me, and especially after you hear what happened in the case, mm. and um, this was a uh, lady who was had coronary artery disease, nothing else too dramatic, and she had a intraortic balloon pump, I believe it was a 30cc back then, this case occurred about I would say about 15 years ago. And uh, it's interesting how you remember these cases of, of all the ones you do, it's the ones that go wrong that you remember mm -hmm. in your head and that you never can get those out. And you're wondering how you could have done it differently or well, and as you'll find out as we have the talk here, there was really nothing that could be done. And sometimes those are the hardest ones because you realize this happened and there was nothing anybody could do about it. Uh, coronary artery disease with a pre-op uh, IBP. Our surgical plan was to do a cab times three, uh, once again on pump, off pump was not available at this particular time at our hospital. Uh, we cross clamp with cardioplegia, 
And at this point, uh, our heart-lung machines were not equipped with pulsatile modes. Um, I believe almost all the new ones are these days, Joe, aren't they? They are. They are. Although I think it's very debatable whether or not the pulsatility, the pulse pressure, the upstroke, whether it really has physiologic difference or not. I'm, I'm sort of iffy on what I think. I don't know. I think you you might believe in it more than I do. I, I don't really believe it. I gave it a talk much. on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a real hard time believing because it's very right. hard to make a physiologic uh, pulse wave, not because the pump can't do it, but because it has to go through that narrow cannula. The aorta is yeah. that big around, yeah. right. and our cannula is only that big around. It's really hard to do that. Well, it's usually a small um, pulse wave. Very. Yeah. You know, and, very, and, very little differential, mm -hmm. maybe, um, you know, 15 to 20 points, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I think that's generous. Right. But, but is that enough to benefit the patient? I right? think it's continuous flow that goes faster and then continuous flow that goes slower and continuous flow. I don't think. Like a, it, like is, a, it, is it enough mm -hmm. to benefit the patient? I don't believe so. I think you have to have at least a pulse pressure. Uh, I, I think the data out there is 30, but it could be higher than that. But you have to have at least, I'll say it's 30, pulse pressure in order to really have a physiologic effect to your pulsatility. Right, and I think it, it's a, almost as much uh, surgeon-specific as it is perfusion-specific. Sure. And you use it if you feel like it, it does provide the uh, benefit. And I guess the, I've always heard that the, it helps prevent against AKI. Uh, and uh, I think that's the reason you do flow it. may, yeah. um, it may, but then, you know, and I don't want to disturb your, please forgive me for throwing you off on the slides. No problem. This is a kind of a short one. That, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that's, that was, that was prophetic <laughs> and true. But, uh, but, you know, if you look at all of the VADs that are created now, all the art, the total artificial heart is a continuous flow continuous device. Mm -hmm. And those patients, I mean, live. I mean, look at, look at Dick Cheney, you know, the former vice president of the United States, lived for years with a continuous flow, right. uh, total artificial heart, and uh, did fine. You know, yeah. his kidneys, he got a transplant, even though he shouldn't have been eligible for one, but he was the former vice president, so he got one anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. <laughs> no, I think rules are rules. He's not a better, he's not somebody, he's not better than somebody else, but that's a, that's a philosophical. I'll let you that, that's ahead. another another talk, right? Yeah. Another talk, another day. day. We're gonna have that. We're gonna have yeah. a lot of ethics on Friday. Yes, that's we gonna are. be a really intense because yeah. I've got very strong feelings about a lot of things. Yeah. Great really? segue, by the way. Great segue. Yes. So anyway, what we decided to utilize at that point was our surgeons like to use the intraortic balloon pump, counter pulsation, uh, internal rate of 80 with about half to two-thirds augmentation level to provide some of this pulsatile flow. So that's what we decided to do. That was our standard at that, at that point. Okay, uh, everything was going very well. We had done the distal anastomoses and we were doing the proximals. All of a sudden, we lost pressure and the left chest filled up with red oxygenated blood very, very quickly. So he had previously, I'm assuming they had taken the mammary down. Yes. So the left chest, the pleura was open. So all of that open. was open. Open. 
So you saw it easily. We saw it easily. And there's a lot of blood hold that left chest hold, it holds chest a lot, hold and a lot it holds it very quickly too. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, uh, the surgeon I worked with at the time was very demonstrative, and so after about ten or twelve different ways of of, of saying the same thing, uh, all we could really do was initiate sucker bypass with our red sucker. We turned our vent into a sucker. We tried our best to keep the PAs from using the cell saver sucker at this point because nothing irritates me more than a big bleed and having a PA or a surgical assistant use the cell saver. But when, then they can't see. Yeah. But, so it's uh, like this fight. Yeah. I need that blood, right. but I need to see. Right. And we fight over this all we the do. time. It's a very interesting dynamic. And, and, and during the course of a lot of cases, it's created quite a few very stern and direct comments. Uh, so we'll leave that one for another day, We've had too. some fights. We've had some fights over that one. I mean, it just pure out fights, you know. So anyway, the only thing we could do was uh, uh, utilize the vent catheter as an extra suction, and we even used a third suction. Uh, we uh, wide in another line to try to go through one pump head when I had the one five-second uh, chance to do that. He said, just cool the patient down. I don't know where this blood's coming from. i got to try to find it. Uh, so we did what you would normally do on a case like this, cool them down. I gave volume, crystalloid blood. We got the nurse started. Anesthesia gave blood. We tried not to use the cell saver. Um, we used uh, RBCs and crystalloid for volume resuscitation. Anesthesia gave pressors. We were unable to locate the source of bleeding. Uh, I wish I'd have done a lot more um, PA work in my training because I think I could have known much better what they were dealing with up there. But the end result was the patient basically bled out. You no just matter couldn't what flow. We couldn't. We couldn't flow. The pressures went down. Uh, you had foam all over the place because of so much suction. I, I, it, it was. It was horrible. And obviously. Uh, we just, the patient's pressure became so low. Uh, they started uh, chest massage of the heart and nothing happened. Patient desanguinated and died. What in the world happened? What in the world happened? Going along, no problem, perfect, everything like that. So. Okay, so to make oh, that. Oh, uh, yeah, let me yeah. go back. This is my, uh, this is the one that Joe that should. Uh, go back one. Yeah. And then play. tap the screen and just hit. Yeah, just touch the screen here. Let me help. Hold on. And then now you want to go back. Here, let me help. Yeah, this is. I'll help you with it. So we'll tap that. Okay. And then right there. Okay. Okay. This is a good picture here of a TEE showing uh, intraortic balloon pump. And it shows kind of what the aorta looks like. And the bottom picture is a lot better. This is an interaortic balloon pump at work. This is what it looks like inside of there. And if you've ever seen one outside of the body, you'll notice that it works kind of like a flag. It's not like a circus clown balloon that fills up and out. It doesn't go from the center out. There's a line. And the balloon material kind of whips around like a flag. So that as it comes down and it inflates back up, it whips it back up. And you'll see this flip of the balloon 
Yeah. Can we, if I wanted to run that just again, tap it, just tap the screen and then push the start. Button. Okay, thank Play you. Button. We'll go through the first part of it again. Well, as you can see, there is a lot of, um, we'll see in a minute here, a lot of manipulation uh, and a lot of movement in the end of an intraaortic balloon pump catheter. And I've always wondered what it looks like in there. And as we'll get this next picture to come up, you can see right here at the tip end of it how much of a floral and how much movement there is there. This one is a little bit more. There's a long. Uh, you see the tip banging into yeah. the. Yeah, it's banging into. You the see the wall. tip banging, banging the and that's a perfect picture. Let me go uh, once again. Here, use your finger to go back. Okay, just go back. Okay, yeah. and we'll do this one more time. And I'll do that that third picture, which is the source of our problem. And we'll just give up the mystery right now in that because of us utilizing the balloon pump during ischemic arrest, there you uh, see you'll see this one. There it is. There that it is. bottom right, you can see the tip. A tear in the intimal, intimal layer of the aorta. Being that she was an elderly lady, frail, like bad paper tissues, thin. paper thin, all of a sudden that continued pounding in that one area split the intima. We ended up having a retrograde uh, tear that went all the way through the layers of the aorta burst out the aorta on the other side and all of our flow from the heart lung machine was going right out the hole into the left chest yeah that was a big hole i think if you it go to your hole. next slide you're going to see a really neat video too because there you go now just tap on the picture itself and then you can just push the play button there you go that kind of shows you a little bit of how it works there like that mm -hmm. and you can see it once again you see the tip how much it moves that tip had to be just positioned perfectly on that intimal layer of that aorta mm -hmm. to initiate the process of the tear. And then as we utilize it during the heart-lung machine with the uh, continuous flow coming down there, uh, the two combined just finally caused the problem, split the aorta, and it was nothing we could do after that. Point. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. Well, you know, sometimes you get these patients and they just, they look frail on the outside. Older women typically, but they just look like they're, they're even their skin, you know, yes, it's that paper. You can just tell. It's a bit just paper friable, thin. Friable. And so you can imagine that their entire insides are like that as well. Mm, absolutely. Once, once again, a risk management hearing was done. And this was a, an extremely uh, big situation very important situation had a lot of members cardiology was there nursing was there surgeons group was there uh, i was represented by our company with our risk manager who came all the way from uh, another state uh, to assist me during this and um, after we looked at the events of the case it was just determined it was a freak situation that could happen to anybody uh, there was no way that anybody could really adequately considering how quick the blood loss was. Being a little frail lady, she didn't have much blood volume right. anyway. Well, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to create a more pulsatile environment. Right. She's mm -hmm. older, she's frail, she's likely going to go into renal failure. 
-hmm. you're what's the best thing we can do for her you know well with counter pulsation in the aorta will give us actually a better pulse little waveform than would uh uh, uh that would the pump actually trying to pulse but of course when we this is our belief you're talking several years ago i know several you are years ago, yeah. and you know you think about it of course the balloon inflates and it might actually most of it goes from the bottom, like you said, it unfurls, right. and it's really designed to try and propel it forward, proximal to the yeah. balloon, yeah. right, Retrograde, or back right. towards Retrograde. the heart, right. right, as opposed to down. And so, what might you think is helping the kidney might actually be because you have counter flow, right? Counter flow, right? Right. So right. you see that in the wrist, hmm. but what are you really getting down here? Right. You know, down in the kidneys. I don't really know. But no one could have anticipated this. How many times we have done that? I have never seen that happen. Never I've even heard never of it. seen it. Right. So, well, this is just one of those rem reminders. It was a freak thing that could happen. Right. You know, you were saying how these cases stick with you. Either you learn something from it, and so that's why you remember, or you realize just how little control we actually have. Oh yeah. Well, when something like that happens, of course we have. There's nothing we can do. I mean, you did everything you could do. You right. try getting enough flow. Right. They have to find, obviously, the source of the bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, your fluid blood resuscitating, your cooling, try and protect the brain. But even if you would have found the source of the bleeding, done a big thoracotomy, been able to repair the aorta, if it was even repairable, mm -hmm. the end result for her was probably not going to be very positive. It's going to be a, she might've got her out of the operating room, but it would have been a very protracted, yeah, likely right. unsuccessful outcome. I just don't see how, I mean, it, it happened so fast too. She lost blood right. so fast. There wasn't time to make a thoracotomy incision or to really try to find a good place to cross clamp. And could uh, you because the, it, it, she's it, it calcified. Right. right. It probably right. would have been a bigger problem. So mm -hmm. she pretty much uh, decided her own uh, situation with that. And that we, from the time the event happened until she basically was gone was, I'd say, about a minute and a half. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. There's, there's nothing, nothing, there's nothing, and we, there's well, nothing I mean, that we could have That's like done. a massive... You know, gunshot yeah. wound. It's like a gunshot wound. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you, yes. you cut your carotid yeah, artery. I mean, you know, yes. like, that, there's no sense, time. Right? Yes, there's no time. There's no time. There's you have no to time first to stop It's like having an aneurysm. But, you know, but, even you stopping know, the bleeding yeah. doesn't necessarily, let's say they, it was, uh, let's, let's say they could at least control it. You still got to fix it. You got to yeah. fix it. Yeah. <laughs> These are not, and, you know, that's easy to do when you're just replacing some pipes that burst from the cold weather from the freeze, <laughs> but it's a lot harder to do when it's somebody's tissue with all well, of those branches. And I remember, it's been a long time now, but when I was still a student at Texas Heart, we had a, a little old lady and she came in and um, they were doing a, a abdominal aneurysm repair. Mm -hmm. So I was just running the cell saver, but you know, I was prepped and ready. This was going to be likely a, you know, very, quick bleeding case. Mm -hmm. I want to say she was in her late 70s, maybe early 80s. So she was a frail little thing, just mm -hmm. a little bit of nothing. Mm -hmm. They got in there to repair, put a graft in, and the aorta just kept ripping and mm -hmm. ripping, mm -hmm. and it ripped all the way up. And there was nothing that can be done because right. he, so, and then it ripped more mm -hmm. and more and more, and that could have even been the case for you, right. you know, with that, uh, 
that frail of a... It likely would have been. I yeah. mean, like I said, I don't think, you know, especially when they're like that, when they're already... Everything has to go perfectly and actually, even with all of the skill that some of these people have, they ha it's almost like they had to go play a slot machine and put in the right. do max bet and hit the jackpot. It's just everything mm -hmm. had to be perfect. Right. And uh, even with it being perfect, even playing the best hand they could play, yeah. this, this, this just was an unforeseeable event. It was unforeseeable. There's no way I would, I've ever heard of it, as I said. It, uh, post, but it defines you. You know, once, once sure. we uh, had uh, unfortunately pronounced the patient and they were able to evacuate the blood from the left chest, the, the rip in the aorta was almost three inches long. Oh, my God. That's Almost three. Inches. I mean, so it, eight centimeters. I mean, so it probably yeah. made the tiniest hole, and then and it just, just ripped. And just the, yeah. Yeah, the could you see just, the could you see the balloon? Uh, yeah, actually, you could, and uh, that was the first indication that uh, my surgeon said, "The only thing I don't think of is that's the culprit right there." Mm -hmm. And uh, the risk management hearing was done, and there was obviously a, a, a no cause. For anybody, it mm -hmm. was just one of those weird things, and but uh, I think uh, it bought us a lot of goodwill with the hospital to have done that, and uh, I just hope it never happens to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, if anybody's had that happen, I'd like to would like to know. I've never heard of it, so it'd be interesting to see if anybody else has experienced.